You are listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And this week, we're profiling a composer of marked distinction, the great Gustav Mahler. He's one of our favorite composers here on the Coffee House, and uh-huh. his symphonies, including his first that we'll be looking at a little later, are unparalleled. Gustav Mahler was born in Bohemia in 1860 to a Jewish family, and his first musical instruments were the piano and accordion, which were perfect instruments for his first musical inspiration to take shape. And he grew up near a military base and heard both military marches and folk songs that provided him with foundational musical material. He was a very smart young lad and began composing his own pieces by the age of four, that copied the style of music that he heard. And he worked extremely hard with his music practice and became quite proficient at piano. He was accepted into the Vienna Conservatory at 15 to begin his formal musical training. And although he was quite good at the piano, he did let it fall to the wayside a bit as he instead began furiously studying the art of composition. Mahler's childhood experiences outside the conservatory were really a big part of his inspiration for his compositions now and later in life. We'll talk more about his musical style later, but you can definitely hear a lot of anguish in it. And this feeling comes from a combination of an unstable family life, including the death of half of his 14 siblings. That is seven a lot of dead siblings. Mm -hmm. I'm very sorry, Mahler. And also his feeling like an outsider wherever he went, being both a German living outside of Germany, as well as being Jewish. After graduating from the conservatory, Mahler continued his education at the Vienna University. Here he joined the academic Wagner Society, where his new German style was really honed. So Mahler's style has been described as being like a modern version of Wagner. And it was during his schooling, also at this university, that Mahler began to find a niche in conducting. As a conductor, he found he was able to promote works that met his own artistic ideal, such as the great post-Wagnerian symphonies of his friend Bruckner. And his first notable job came when he was 21 years old, where he was able to conduct at the Landestheater in Laibach. This exposed him to the great classical and early romantic operas, and he was showered by high praise from the critics. His next job, however, was in Kassel, Germany, and came with the title of Royal Musical and Choral Director. This and other subsequent jobs he held were somewhat more bureaucratic than the young Mahler would have liked, and because of this, he developed a bit of a snarky attitude that stayed with him throughout life. However, this job seemed for Mahler to be the kind of job you get to put on your resume and then leave as soon as you can get something better. And luckily for him, something better did come along. In 1885, he secured a job in Leipzig. However, it wouldn't start until 1886. Luckily, he did find a short gig in Prague to fill his time, and he also had a chance to visit his family, which was a rare occurrence due to his busy and distant concert schedule. 
There in Leipzig, he found many friends and projects, and due to connections with the family of Karl Maria von Weber, one of his projects was to complete one of Weber's unfinished operas, Die Drei Pintos. The reception of this work was very warm and was even appreciated by Richard Strauss and Tchaikovsky, who were in attendance. And it was also during this time that Mahler produced his first symphony, along with many song cycles. However, by 1888, he resigned due to an altercation with a stage manager who he had never really gotten along with. His next job was for the Royal Hungarian Opera in Budapest. He was offered this job partly as a political move, it seems, as Hungary at the time was struggling with Germanic influences, and bringing in a German may have helped to unify the world of the arts. During this time, Mahler's personal life was falling to pieces, it seemed. Both his father and mother died in quick succession, and one of his still-surviving sisters also died. This meant he was now the head of the family, and he had to make arrangements for his two remaining sisters and one brother. The other brother was serving in the military, so he was well taken care of. However, this added to the stress of Mahler's current job. He seemed to have an average reputation among the critics in Budapest. Sometimes he conducted pretty good, and other times no one liked it. Mahler once again left this post in a huff after a falling out with a colleague. Can you sense a pattern here? <laughs> <laughs> it seems he always planned his outrages right after he had a next job secured, however. Clever. Because he was immediately able to move on to his next job as the chief director of the Hamburg Stadttheater. And Hamburg was far more to Mahler's liking. The management was more willing to work with him rather than fight with him, so there was less to disagree about. And starting in 1893, Mahler started taking his summers off from conducting. He famously would take vacations that lasted the whole season. And this is when he would do all of his composition for a year. Imagine, if you will, writing an entire symphony of Mahlerian scale in just three or four months. <laughs> and although this seems like the ideal post... Mahler was still not satisfied, for he desired to be in the heart of the European music world, Vienna. And this dream came true in 1897, when he secured a job that eventually led to the title of director of the Vienna Philharmonic. But Mahler, of course, can never be satisfied, and being out of Germany again, he still felt like an outsider. He converted from Judaism to Catholicism in 1897, perhaps in an effort to fit in more. He did really great things for the Vienna music scene. His rehearsal tactics and high standards produced good results, and it seemed everything he produced in Vienna was a hit. After an initial period of stressful settling in, Mahler actually found some routine in his life. However, he was beginning to experience some ill health. Stressful and grueling concerts could take him out easily, much to his own chagrin. In spite of this, Mahler still took on the world. Starting in 1907, Mahler traveled to New York City to conduct seasons for the New York Symphony Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and he continued to travel to America every year until his death. And obviously, for someone with already weak health, a transatlantic voyage was going to cause some problems. Mahler had contracted a bacterial endocarditis, but he made sure that he made his way back to Vienna before he died in 1911. Gustav Mahler is famous for writing symphonies grand in scale and scope, so we're only going to talk about one of those, his first movement of his first symphony. 
and Mahler made many attempts at this symphony, so the version we hear today, with its four movements, is definitely not the way it started out. This symphony was written primarily in 1888, though he utilized themes from some of his previous works and later even revised the composition after this year. It's subtitled The Titan. However, it was originally written with no real program notes. But upon persuasion by friends and critics, Mahler produced some sort of analysis. Apparently, he described each movement as an episode in the life of the symphony's hero, the titular Titan, and the first movement is... Quote, we are carried away by a Dionysian, a jubilant mood that has not yet been broken or dulled by anything. However, he eventually stopped talking about and providing these notes. He omitted them not only because, quote, I, Mahler, consider them inadequate, but also because I found out how the public has been misled by them. And I really agree with Mahler that we can come up with a much better story based on our own experiences and knowledge of the composition itself, rather than just a single sentence that he provided. So the main melody in this first movement is actually a direct quote from one of Mahler's vocal works, Lieder eines fahrenden Gesellen, or Songs of a Wayfarer. And the text of this work provides a far more programmatic backdrop than this little sentence he came up with. And as we can tell, the song is generally quite perky, which reflects in the chipper lyrics. The lyrics start, Good morning, don't you think the world is going to be beautiful? How the world pleases me. But in classic gloomy Mahler style, this happy scene takes a dark turn as the last stanza of the lyrics reads, Now will my good fortune surely begin to? No, no, I believe it can never, never bloom for me. But Mahler was smart, and despite being kind of a drama queen, wouldn't <laughs> stoop to just having a pity party. One of his most famous quotes is, A symphony must be like the world. And as this first symphony is the very beginning of his symphonic world that can actually be traced through his entire nine and a half symphony output, he has to do some world building in the introduction before we get to the tune. The whole symphony, and thus Mahler's whole symphonic world, starts out with the strings playing a really quiet and atmospheric unison A, with the violins playing up on really high harmonics. And the woodwinds then play a series of downward fifths. It's all very static, suggesting there is nothing yet in this world, but there's an energy that something might happen. And this energy begins to build up with a sequence of the downward fifths. And then we have a spark. The clarinets belt out a fanfare, and the oboes end the phrase with a zinger. But was it enough to bring the titan to life? Maybe 
not as we go back to the stasis of the unison A. But things are really starting to get spicy. Mahler incorporates a cool effect of having off-stage trumpets, as if to signal something big is coming in the distance. And then it's our first sign of life. The clarinet mimics a cuckoo call, and the French horns play a chorale that symbolizes the sun rising on this new world. Our titan is waking up and taking his first shaky steps. He is exploring this new world and is a little scared. And finally, our hero understands and goes on over the hills and streams, as does the wayfarer described before. As we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, one of Mahler's first musical influences was folk music that he heard in his hometown. He carried this inspiration throughout life and frequently offset his grand romantic gestures with folksy idioms. For example, while we hear the violins gracefully marching along with the movement's pleasant tune, we hear in the background the clarinets with some very obvious grace notes that are reminiscent of a country dance. Later, coming out of a darkly romantic section, the French horns get to present a more jaunty melody that could have folk song inspiration as well. So it is the opinion of this podcast that Mollier is a great orchestrator. And although most of this movement is made up of the same pastoral melody, he does change it up and keep it extremely interesting, particularly by changing the timbre. Timbre is kind of an abstract term that relates to the quality and tone of the sound. For example, an oboe and string bass have different timbres, because the bass can be described as dark and low and expansive, while the oboe is more light or nasally and direct. In one particular iteration of Mahler's theme, instead of having one section play the entire theme as he did at the beginning with just the strings, Mahler has split up the melody to be passed throughout the orchestra. And Mahler is very smart to change the timbre slightly by putting the instruments in order of ones that have timbres similar but just different enough to each other. And this is a subtle change, but it's quite fun to listen how all the instruments can meld together flawlessly and pass around this continuous melody.
So the end of this movement is quite extensive and actually takes about two minutes to really come to a close. We heard the first grand tense buildup here. about this buildup is that once you think we've come to the climax, we soon discover it was a sub-climax, really just part of the buildup to the actual ending of the piece. to the grand ending. Mahler brings this movement to a close with a small coda that sounds like our titan hero is running away from us. The orchestra is mostly in unison here, playing very quick staccato 16th notes, and then we come to a crash bang of a closing. So while this movement may end in the happiest of ways, don't be <laughs> fooled. Mahler's trademark drama will take it to a dark place by the time we reach the third movement, which is a macabre funeral procession to a minor key version of the classical children's song, Frere Jaca. And stay tuned for the sequel to Mahler's Symphony No. 1, <laughs> Symphony No. 2, Resurrection, where the hero who has died comes back. That's uh, just like what we mentioned earlier, Mahler's extensive symphonic output really does share a lot of themes and a lot of uh, and a lot of the same material. And it's interesting to listen to those because as you hear the story develop, you can sort of also hear Mahler's symphonic skill and, uh, and, and conventions develop as well. So in the way as it is the story of Mahler's life, and also the story of the hero that he writes into his symphonies. And I'd also like to bring up, again, the motifs that you can trace through all of his symphonic output. As we mentioned, he was a big fan of the music of Wagner, and as we have mentioned before, Wagner liked his leitmotifs, and I think Mahler kind of follows in those footsteps of returning motifs that symbolize the same kind of things happening in his hero's life. And we definitely recommend exploring the rest of the symphony on your own to see how Mahler wraps up the story. Thank you for listening to this 42nd episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. 42! Yeah, a magic number. Let's keep it going onward to 43, and if you would like to help us out there, if you'd like to keep us going... Tell a friend, tell a friend to listen, tell a friend to tell a friend to listen, and uh, spread the word about classical music because it's amazing. <laughs> For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Allison. And I'm Asa. Thank you so much for listening. Mahler's Symphony Number no. 1, Movements 1 and 3 were performed live by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schiff. You can find the Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Remember to like us on Facebook for shareable episode updates. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.